This morning, we're looking at a text that's very familiar to some of us. Uh, This particular text has had an imprint on my life as I have grown and matured in my walk with the Lord. It's become more and more precious to me. It is in many ways given me a greater revelation of who God is through the works of his hands. You know, we understand that creation gives witness to God. But through the works of his hands in redeeming and restoring his family, I've come to know God even more and appreciate him for including even a wretch like myself in that family. And so I've titled this text or this sermon this morning, The Workmanship of God Through Grace, The Restoration of the Family of God. I want us to be, at the end of this time together, in awe of the wisdom of God, the power of God, and the beauty of his grace. The text has always been read for us. There's a particular verse in this text that I would like for us to kind of zero in on, and we're going to work our way out from there. And that is verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. And it reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In my time kind of studying for this passage and praying and meditating and asking the Lord to open up the floodgates of wisdom and and allow me to just glean a little bit, I've kind of spent some time looking at what this word workmanship means. And at first glance, it's just, you know, an ordinary word, workmanship. But then I begin to look in another translation, I looked at the the NIV, and it translates that word workmanship as handiwork. And the New Living Translation reads the verse like this, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned. And for some reason, those, those translations of that word workmanship resonated with me, but I understood that the original uh, New Testament was written in Greek, and so I said, well, I might as well take a little journey over to uh, the Greek text and see what that word workmanship means. And it's a Greek noun meaning a thing that is made. I said, well, that really didn't help very much, but, you know, (laughs) but thanks anyway. But the Greek word is poema. Now, for some reason, that word resonated with me because it is the root word which, from which we get the word poem, the English word poem. And I begin to meditate a little bit there and kind of ask the Lord, what, what does that mean? What, what are you saying that we are your workmanship? And I begin to just rest in the fact that once I put these things together, that God is expressing something unique and beautiful in the lives of his redeemed people through his church, 
We are his masterpiece, his handiwork. It expresses something of intimacy. It shows how intricately detailed God has taken time to fit together the body. All individual parts and unique histories, but together we proclaim something about the person of God that the rest of creation doesn't. And so I began to look at other other passages that talk to this idea of being made, poema. Deuteronomy 32, 6 and 15 speaks to the reality of being uh, God's creation. It says that, is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Now look at Psalms 100, which says, know the Lord God, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He made us. We are his. It gives us a sense of identity. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It's it's God-word. It's not man-word. Now look at Psalms 138.8, which says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose in me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So we are the work of God's hands. He has established us. He has made us. We are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. He is the good shepherd. See, this is an unmistakable There's an unmistakable intimacy between God and his creation, between creator and creation. But this intimacy and beauty is illustrated still further as we think about the workmanship of a poet. I think about the work and the toil that goes into a poem. It's something of an attempt to try to depict something that cannot be merely expressed in a portrait. It cannot be seen just in a simple selfie. It can't be painted with a brush or spelled out in a statistical equation, let alone purchased with currency. I believe that then I begin to get closer to the heart of a poet. The thought of scrolling through the vast ocean of verbal and written expressions, the wellspring of the various languages and dialects and metaphors and synonyms and homonyms and superlatives and punctuations and uh, prepositions. It's a lot there. I liken it to being and doing the painstaking work of wading through a vast treasure in search of apples of gold in settings of silver. This, I believe, gets to the heart of what it means to be the workmanship, to be the masterpiece, to be the handiwork of God. It's intimate. It's intentional. It's life-shaping and life-forming. Let me pray for us. Lord, You will fulfill your purpose in your church. We are your creation, your handiwork. 
you are establishing and have established us in Christ. Your steadfast love endures forever and never fails. As skillful wordsmiths carefully uh, weigh each word and phrase and punctuation and measure the cadence and the rhythm and the rhyme of their words, would we appreciate the pain of the cross, the suffering of Messiah, the power of your might and redemption, looking forward to the great consummation and the feast at your table for all eternity? Amen. So the question still remains, what does it mean to be created? At first glance, when we look at that passage where it says, God created us in Christ for good works. Initially, we think of the Genesis account of, of, of being created. In the beginning, God created, right? Genesis 1. Or Colossians 1.16 tells us that, by him, all things were created, him, Christ. All things were created through him and for him. But I think at first glance, we kind of just say, well, that's what he's talking about and move on. But is that all? I don't think so. I believe we too quickly assume the meaning of the phrase created in Christ Jesus when we read the New Testament epistles. The meaning of the word used in these texts is to form with your hands, to shape, to completely change or transform. Is the word kitzo, to be created, is to be shaped and formed by another for the purpose of the one by whom one is created. The idea communicated by Paul to the Ephesian Christians of being created in Christ is not simply the Genesis creation account. This is a recreation, a new creation. He says as much in the other epistles. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Colossians 3, 10 says, the new self, which is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him, is according to his purpose. Galatians 6, 15 says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. If the original creation was a display of the image of God and an outpouring of the fullness of love in the Godhead, then the new creation is the showing off of the depth of the riches of his loving kindness and a sort of flossing of the plentiful storehouses storehouse of his mercy, that God was rich in mercy, that it didn't cost him, he didn't, his mercy didn't depreciate as he gave out mercy. It didn't diminish the storehouse of his mercy. It was plentiful. He poured it out on us. And so in many ways, he was showing off. I'm okay with that. He's God. He can do that. And so our text tells us Pretty much that same fact. If you look at verse 4 and verse 7, he says that God did this because he was being rich in mercy. Or it says, but God who was rich in mercy. Or verse 7, which says, in essence, he was showing off. 
says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I really want to hit three points. One is that in the process of God redeeming, restoring, and reconciling his family, he encountered three things. One, a crucial conflict. Two, we see a conquering Christ. And then three, we see the continuity of family. I believe in the execution of this poema, as we know that word to mean now, what? His workmanship, his masterpiece. In the execution of his masterpiece, God dealt with our crucial conflict through sending a conquering Christ in order to solidify the continuity of the family. So first, let's start with this crucial conflict. Every family has conflict, right? If you're part of a family and you're honest, you have conflict. You've got issues. I believe that God, in, in many ways, designed it that way. That you don't get to pick the members of your family. That in some way, their personality and your personality are going to kind of rub up against each other and cause some friction. There's a sense in which in the midst of that friction, God is using it to conform us to the image of Christ. That he is using it to sanctify us. But that's okay. The real issue is that when a member of the family, let's just say a child of the family, decides that they want to usurp the authority of the um, father of the family. He decides that I no longer want to take orders from dad. Dad, I've reached the age of maturity and I just decided that uh, I don't have to listen to you anymore. That's a crucial conflict. This is going to be some, some problems. And in essence, that's what happened in the family of God. We know if we go back to Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve decided that they no longer wanted to uh, follow the commandments and the orders of God the Father. And so they took it upon themselves to disobey. And in that, we become sons of disobedience, all of us. He was our federal representative. And even if we think we could have done better in this situation, we would have done the same. And so in verse 2, Paul calls our Position by nature, two things. In verse 2, we see he, he describes it as sons of disobedience, right? And then later on in verse 3, he describes them as children of wrath. And so sons of disobedience. Here Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, which is largely Gentile, made up of Gentile converts, of the condition of their nature that they were dead. Again, I come across a word like that, and I'm like, what does it mean that they're dead? What does it mean to be dead? 
It couldn't be literal because they obviously were living uh, believers with a pulse and a heartbeat. What he means to communicate to them is their spiritual condition, that they are spiritually dead. The Greek word there is nekros. That just sounds like death, doesn't it? (laughs) This is the universal condition of all humanity. As children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are all sons and daughters of disobedience by nature. Romans 3.23 tells us as much. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We believe that we add something to the nature of God in some ways. That in some ways we add something to salvation even. We reason that It can't be as simple as the grace of God and the mercy of God being poured out on us by grace, through faith in Christ. And so in many ways, we try to find another road, another route. And in that, we're just simply following the course of this world. It couldn't be that simple. We offend God with our pride, thinking that we can add something to the process. We have nothing to add. It's about grace alone, through faith alone. In fact, if we thought about it, how can we add anything if we're dead? (laughs) It's a falling short of the glory of God. We get it honestly. We get it honestly from Adam. (laughs) Whether we are Jew or Gentile, male or female, affluent, fluent, 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 educated, miseducated or undereducated, it doesn't matter. It's the universal condition of humanity. This is our inheritance in Adam. In Adam, because of his conflict with the commandment of God, in Adam, our inheritance is death. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? This condition simply means that we are destitute of the abundant life that flows from a surrendered and devoted will to God. We can't even surrender our will to God. By nature, we go astray. In fact, Isaiah says as much. It says, all we like sheep have what? Gone astray. Each to his own way. The condition is destitute of abundant life. Instead of being able to respond to God in humility and submission, we shake our fist at him. A dead person is given wholeheartedly to offenses against the throne of God. The God of all life. So they are dead. In fact, they're inactive in doing what is right and actively, continually pursue wrong. In several passages, we see this idea expressed. In Ephesians 4, later on in this chapter, or in this book, it says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. 
And so I asked myself, what is this wanton pleasure? That means sexually immodest or promiscuous pleasure. To give yourself to that is to be dead even while you live physically. You're spiritually dead. 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life, out of the, the inheritance of Adam into the life that is in Christ because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We see that it was continual by the word or the verb walked. We walked in this way. This was not passive disobedience. These were blatant affronts to the established order. Continual rebellion. A lifestyle characterized as a renegade. We walked in it. We lived for it. We were children of wrath. And that's the other way that Paul expresses it in verse 3. As one who follows after the course of this world, we're like sheep who have gone astray. We're guilty of a fatal following. When I would come to my mom growing up complaining about not being able to do what everyone else was doing, you know, they had privileges of, you know, going out late at night and kind of hanging out in the street on the corner. And I'm like, man, that's pretty cool. Why can't I do that? Well, she would respond in this way. She would say, well, if everyone jumps off a cliff, I don't even have to finish it. You already know. <laughs> in following the course of this world, we do the same thing. We not only see the cliff, but we leap with the rest of the world. So what does that look like? It looks like living in the passions of our flesh. Expressed in many ways as, man, I'm just doing me. It's just me. I'm doing me right now. I don't even want to be bothered right now. Or it's justified by the equally as ludicrous idea of YOLO. You know, you only live once. And it's like, well, if you only live once, wouldn't you want to find out, like, how to make the most of this life? Or maybe it's the philosophically dressed up statement um, that goes like this. Uh, well, you know, what's right for you is right for you. And what's right for me is right for me. Um, I can't tell you what's right and you can't tell me what's right. Right? Just living after the passions of the flesh. Or maybe it's carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If it feels good, it can't be wrong, right? Follow your heart. Relax your mind. Let your conscience be free. <laughs> or simply, turn down for what? Yeah. Uh, children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. <laughs> far off. It's described as being far off. It says you were once far off. This is similar, I think about, I don't, I don't do archery, but, you know, we always use this illustration, you know, in ministry. But it's that old archery rule that error is increased with distance. 
we're far off from God. And so the error of our ways, the probability of being in error is increased because we're far off from God. The idea is that we were created for fellowship and worship, to be near to God. However, as we follow the course of this world, it leads us far from God. The idea of being close to God, we feel kind of cramps our style, you know. I, you know I'm just doing me right now. It makes things complicated. It's complicated to be near to God, to be near to the people of God. So I let go and leave God. Paul described it as being without hope and without God. See, he tells us this, that it's this, that it's this spirit at work, the spirit of the sons of disobedience, who are the same persons as the children of wrath. John describes it like this. says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan has children, and that's how they act. John tells us in Revelation 13, he says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And back in our book, Ephesians 5, we see, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Yes, Satan has children. And if this is the way that you live following the course of this world, then he is your father. And those who follow it prove to be just that, children of wrath. And we know that the wrath of God is poured out on the children of disobedience. And so how in the world is this conflict resolved? Because it's a real conflict. We didn't make it up. How is it resolved? It's through the conquering Christ. I'm convinced that in many ways our view of Christ in this context has just been kind of glossed over. It's like, ah, I heard that before. Yeah, you're right. Amen. You know. I think our view of Christ in the message of the gospel in some ways is anemic. We only see Christ on the cross. Or we only see Christ in the grave. We don't have a vision of Christ as a reigning king. As one who conquers. As one who overcomes. And I think that's a problem. We forget often that the reality is that all of the grace that we sing about, that we depend on daily, only comes to us through the Messiah, Christ. And this emphasis is all throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And just in two chapters, in Christ is mentioned, or some, some variation of being of in Christ, Christ is mentioned over 20 times in two chapters. I hadn't even got to the other, you know, 
four. He is the point. He is the point. He is the conquering Christ. So what I'd like to do for a moment, and I hope you guys journey with me, is, is to revive our view of this conquering Christ. Walk with me through a few passages. There are a few people in Scripture who, who have a vision of Christ that I think is on par with the vision of Christ that I would like us to have before we leave here today. And the first is Daniel. He said, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel 10, 5 and 6. Daniel 7, 9. And I looked. Thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes was white as snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given the dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The other is John in Revelations 1. He says, I I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to the Tyra, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe, and with a golden sash across his chest, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his head upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, 
I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. How's that for a view of Christ? How's that for a view of Christ? Do you see him in that way? That is a terrifying view. It's a terrifying view. If I'm a son of disobedience, if I'm a child of wrath, but notice regardless of what position you're in, the response is the same, that you will fall on your face as though dead. That is worship. But one will fall in fear of being crushed. The other will fall in worship, in worship of the God who lives. This is the Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in him. It is in him that we are made, though once dead. Raised and seated in heavenly places, we have been raised by the same power that raised Christ, the power of God. We are recipients of his loving kindness and awesome grace. Given purpose and hope in life, we are brought near and adopted as family. We are no longer strangers and aliens. Most of all, we have a hope and we have peace with God. No longer children of wrath and sons of disobedience. Listen, if, if you're hurting or you're lonely or you're going through a trouble situation in your marriage, if you're struggling with a sickness or a disease, abused or addicted, whatever, the same conquering Christ can raise you, can change that circumstance, can, can, can be a brother, can be a sister. Come to him and no longer be without hope, no longer be without God in this world. What is it like to not have hope? To not have hope, I wouldn't want to wake up in the morning. And the reality is that some people came in here this morning and didn't want to wake up. They saw another day and saw another hopeless drudgery, a burden. And so in pursuit of trying to find happiness, many people commit suicide. Many people don't know about the hope of Christ, the hope of glory. They have no hope. What is it like to be without God in this world? Oh, what a, just this is a dreadful thought. Without God? This is just some random acts that are happening. And, and in some ways, if there's no God, then I'm God. And that puts an unbearable weight on my shoulders to try to control every circumstance, every situation, every relationship, everything. And when it doesn't go right, who's to blame? I'm God, right? 
without God in this world. But here is the beauty. That God has invited us into his rich mercy. His mercy-filled family. It's, It's a faithful fellowship. This privilege is made available in Christ. Through Christ. We've been given the gateway to the city of God. It is the revelation of the master plan of our Lord. It is in the gospel that we come to know the plans of the master. We can marvel in his workmanship, marvel in his masterpiece, marvel at his poema. How amazing it is for the people, for a people so different, so different to be united and considered family. This is what Christ has done for us. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, 15, that no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friend. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. A slave doesn't know the plans of his master, but you have been brought in. And disclose all the secrets of the family. So children, listen. Listen to this. Sometimes my daughter will come to me and she say, Daddy, I want to tell you a secret. <laughs> you know, I, I go into daddy mode and it's like, for real? What? What's the secret? <laughs> Here's the secret. That if you are in Christ... You're in the family. Christ is the key. Through him, all the promises and the privileges are yours. But apart from him, there's nothing but wrath. This is it. In Ephesians 1.10, God tells us the plan. He says, the plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. We obtain an inheritance through him. Our redemption is through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is the reality of all who by grace have trusted in the conquering Christ. The question is, have you trusted him? Do you know this to be your reality? Have you been justified by the blood of Christ who conquered sin, death, and the grave? If you've been reconciled to God through trusting in Christ by grace, through faith, have you been reconciled to your neighbor? Do you look across the aisle and see a family member or do you see a stranger? Or an alien. You know that God has broken down the wall of hostility between ethnicities, culture, socioeconomic barriers. Any barrier to authentic familia, any barriers to authentic hospitality, we know that the cross has both a vertical and a horizontal component to it. God has made it clear that he who does not love abides in death. 
Is there a root of racism? Classism? Maybe ethnocentrism in your heart? If so, let us again go to the conquering Christ and repent and believe and obey his commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. The last point of application is this. Throughout the letter, Paul was calling the Ephesian believers to remember. Remember, remember. He says, remember that at one time, you who were considered unclean, uncircumcised. He says, remember that at that time, you were separated from God without hope, without the promises, and without God in the world. Why do you think he was calling them to that, to that remembrance? What, is, what does remembering stir up in us? When you remember that I once was lost, but now I'm found, what, what automatically stirs up in your heart? Is it not gratitude? I believe he's calling these Ephesian believers and indirectly us, East Point Church, to remember the grace of God and salvation, to remember the mercy of God. I believe he's called them to this for the same reason he's called us to remember. We are prone to find ways to divide and discriminate against one another. Paul is reminding them, don't become the new circumcision party. Don't find another way to build up a wall of hostility. I've already broken it down. Erecting new walls of divisions. But instead, remember that Christ alone is our peace. Peace with God and peace with our fellow man. Don't make Calvinism your peace. Don't make Reformed theology your peace. When Christ and he alone is our peace, he is the means through which we are recreated and transformed and able to perform the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's walk this long road of obedience together. Let's lock arms for the expressed glory of the creator, for whom we, the church, are the fullest representation of him who fills all and is in all. Let me pray for us.